Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the horizontal domain. Uh, as you know, in this season two of the Being Known Podcast, we are talking about the nine domains of integration. Uh, we spoke about consciousness the first week. We spoke about the vertical domain or actually, the first week we talked about integration in general. So go back and listen to that one if you haven't, because that'll be very helpful. Then we spoke about consciousness and the vertical domain. Um, so those are there for you you all to go back and listen to if you haven't already. And today, we we're talking about the horizontal domain. Um, Kurt, when I think about sort of this left brain, right brain thing, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing that comes to mind <laughs> is, do you remember those Mac commercials from like the 2000s, early 2000s, maybe 19, maybe the late 90s, where it was two guys in a white room and one guy's like a cool, you know, <laughs> hip kind of guy and he's standing there and the other guy's a complete computer <laughs> right, nerd right. with his pocket oh, protector yeah, and everything. Right. And yeah, he's yeah. like, yeah. you know, the cool guy's like, I'm Mac. Yeah. And the other guy's like, you know, I'm PC, <laughs> right? And so I, I kind of... I kind of had this feeling of, you know, the right brain is this sort of, you know, Mac right. kind of thing, exactly. right? And the left brain is more of a PC. Yeah. And then you see these illustrations everywhere where the, the right brain has just got colors shooting out in every direction. And the left brain is like a piece of concrete. Right. It's like just gray. And, yeah. You know, so let's talk about, you know, as we start today, let's talk about the um, the differences between the right and left brain and maybe how they're similar. Yeah. Well, I think... Uh, one of the things that is a is a pretty common misconception is that the right and the left brain are so starkly different. And we think that the right brain does only certain things and the left brain does only certain things. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those things that each of those hemispheres of the, of the brain tends to be more uh, active in doing. But the reality is that uh, most of the things that we talk about that happen in the right or the left, whether it's our nonverbal cues or our language or emotion, most of those functions are things that both hemispheres can and do perform. For example, it is true that most of our language develops in a part of the left brain that is specific for that. And we know that when people have strokes that end up, you know, affecting the left hemisphere of the brain, people's language can quickly go. But it doesn't mean that that's the only part of the brain that can do that. In fact, when we hear certain words that are particularly emotionally laden, especially ones that are uh, drawing us to connect with each other. So if I hear your, if you hear your name called, and especially if, if, if Nell were to call your name, especially if Nell calls your name in you know a time when she's feeling particularly amorous or like you know kind <laughs> or whatever, right? Like right. Even though it's a word like your name, like that would tend to show up in your right hemisphere. Or when we're using words to express love or care for one another, that's language that tends to show up in the right brain, despite the fact it having to do with being words. And there are other things. There there are these amazing stories of neuroplastic change in which certain parts of the brain that used to be 
taken care of by one half of the brain. A person has an injury or a stroke and that part of the brain's job is taken over by another part of the brain so that we see that the capacity of the brain to shift from one side to the other to do certain things is a possibility. Now, the way that we end up living our lives is that like, like a lot of things, if I become, if I get really good at throwing a baseball, you know, from the time I'm a kid with one hand versus the other, I'm going to eventually develop a capacity to throw that baseball, let's say with my right hand, that eventually I won't have the same capacity to throw with my left hand. And if we were to look at the brain activity that has to do with like the fingertips and how they hold a baseball when they grip a baseball, you would see that the part of my brain that is connected to my right hand, which would be my left hemisphere, the part of that part of the brain, you would see that like there's all kinds of neural connections between the part of my left brain and my right hand that wouldn't be the case for my left hand and my right brain. And we typically are doing these kinds of things. We're developing a lot of these skill sets when we're younger. And so it's easy for us to say, oh, well, certain things happen in the right and certain things happen in the left. And that can be the case, but it's not because they don't potentially have the capacity to do both things equally well. But here is one place that is different. And that has to do with the general posture that both hemispheres actively engage when it comes to living in the world. And what do I mean by the posture that I have in the world? You know, in order for us to navigate the world, we are doing two things at one time always. We are at the same time that I am uh, like looking out at the world. I'm looking out at the world and I'm observing the world. I'm engaging the world. I'm still at some point simultaneously also having to kind of keep an eye on what's going on in the detail of the world. Yes, I want to look at the forest. I'm taking in the forest. But I also need to make sure that there's not something in one of those trees, a predator in one of those trees that might want to come out and get a hold of me, especially Mm -hmm. if I'm a lower mammal or if I'm a bird. There are certain ways in which I will pay attention to the world in its large expanse, kind of taking it all in. Right, But there's another way that I'm paying attention to the world in which I'm actually looking at details. I'm looking at how the world works. One way, I'm experiencing the world. I'm, ta- I'm with the world. The world is a here and now thing. I'm taking in the beauty, the sensations, the images. I'm just kind of swimming in that. But there's another way in which I pay attention to the world in which instead of being immersed in it, I'm swimming in it. The other way that I do, that I engage the world, is if I'm, I, I keep the world at a distance. Now, the distance may only be at arm's length, but I keep it at a distance in order for me to examine it, in order for me to study it, in order for me to manipulate it, in order for me to use it to its best ability. So I, I am listening to Switchfoot play the blues. And I'm driving my car, but I'm actually like, I'm paying a lot more. I'm just with the blues than I am necessarily paying attention to details of signage and so forth and so on, because I'm just with that music or you're with a painting, you know, you're, you're with one of Van Gogh's paintings. You're just in that space or you as an actor, like once you, once you are doing your work, all your prep work, you, you come to the stage and you are in that space and like, dude, like you're in that space. But if I need to change my tire, 
I'm like looking at a distance. I want to know where the lug nuts are. I want to know where the, you know, where the tire iron is. I need to know where those things are in order for me to manipulate it, in order for me to change it. If I'm trying to figure out a math problem, if I'm in, a, you know, if I'm like one of the engineers for Apollo 13, like I got to figure out how to get these guys home. And I am thinking, thinking, thinking about something out here at a distance. And we need both of those things. The problem is for us, where things get really difficult, is if A, one side of the brain gets overdeveloped to the extent that the other side is underdeveloped. And then we have this challenge of our kind of emotional, mental, relational lives being kind of hijacked by one side or the other. And when we're not aware that that's happening, we just think that we have a set of problems, but we don't know that it has much to do with the difference between our right and left hemispheres. So the one thing that I'm hearing you saying, I think, is that I think a lot of people have been misled to believe or have, it's a myth, is that, you know, you are either right-brained or left-brained. Mm -hmm. That's just not a thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, both are working all the time, right. but sometimes people can be have one side more dominant than the other side. Right. And so... So, for instance, again, back to the baseball metaphor, if I'm throwing, if I throw the baseball with my right hand, it is true that my left brain is going to be more dominant than my right when it comes to throwing a baseball. Right. But we would be in, we would be incorrect to say that just because, now I know this is going to be stereotypes, right? But uh, it would be incorrect to say that just because I'm an engineer, I'm left brain. And because you're an artist, you're right brain. That would be an unhelpful, right. inaccurate way to describe what it is that's going on. It may be that those two people utilize certain elements of their hemispheres in certain situations more than their counterpart, but it's not because one hemisphere of their mind is more dominant than the other just because one's an artist and one's an engineer. It is true, though, Pepper, and, and we'll, I think we'll get into this more, that that culturally, and this, this is the work of Ian McGilchrist in The Master and His Emissary, culturally, we also see that our neurological behaviors play out in our culture in such a way that when it comes to knowing things, for example, this is where when we get to this whole notion, what does it mean for us to be known? When it comes to knowing things... I think that the most important, in fact, the only way to know things is through the scientific method. That's how I know things. How do you know that this is true? Because we've studied it, because we've set up a research protocol for it, because we've analyzed all the variables. We've done the study, and therefore, this is what we know to be factually true. And so this creeps into all kinds of elements of our lives. So if I tell you that I love you, and you're not feeling it. You're like, yeah, but Kurt, like, I'm really not feeling it. I said, but, but the fact is, right, we can do the research. We can go back and record it. Like, there's the data. My left hemisphere is talking to your left hemisphere, and there's the data. And like, like, like what's the problem? We live in a world that, as it turns out, for the last four to 500 years, as McGilchrist points out, has become increasingly culturally dominated by a left hemispheric way of being in the world. Say more about that. So one way to talk about this is to, first of all, kind of go back to the beginning of like brain development. This will be, this will be kind of helpful, I think. And you all, you can, yeah. you'll, hopefully you'll kind of, you'll, you'll see this really pretty quickly that when we're born, 
the first hemisphere to develop what it's supposed to do is the right hemisphere. So the things that eventually we end up doing mostly out of the right hemisphere are kind of integrated map of the body, right? Our sense of like what our body feels like internally, for instance. Our nonverbal cues that we talked about in our last episode, right? The body and how we communicate both to each other and to ourselves nonverbally through our bodily instincts. Our emotion, our capacity to sense things immediately in a moment, holistically in the room. This sense that there are always these different kind of ways in which you know, we, we have a sense of timelessness, like I'm involved in something, I get in my, get in my zone, I'm just there, and I, the passing t- of time like stops taking place for me. So this sense of we, right? I have a sense of c- being connected to someone else, connected to the world, connected to the universe. This sense of being we with largely is an experience that emerges out of the right hemisphere. Attachment, for instance. Attachment processes... Right crucially emerge beginning with the activity of the right brain. Interestingly enough, you know, most people, most mothers, when they just hold their infants, most mothers hold their infants in their left arms. Hmm. Now, I don't mean that, that, that's not like, well, you know, anybody who's hearing this are like, well, I'll show you. I'm just going to like hold my infant in my right arm from now on. You fancy pants Shrinkomatic. <laughs> I'll teach you. We hold our infant uh, in our left arm. What does that mean? That means that as that newborn is being held in my left arm, their head tends to tilt in such a way that their right ear is against our chest and their left ear is open to hear our voice and their left ear is connected to their right brain. And we give them our voice over and over and over and over again. We hear, we give them our comfort in that way over and over and over again. And so that right hemisphere is taking in a sense of we, a sense of connection, that I'm connected with somebody. And that's its job. And we would say that in the process of our being known, like I want to be known, I want to be known by you, by Amy, by our friends. We, I want to be deeply known. And in order for us to go on and create beauty and to be known is an event that largely emerges in the right hemisphere, as does attachment. I then want to make sense of all that that I'm sensing, and so my left hemisphere then comes in to help me make sense of this. It gives me a sense of understanding. It helps me figure out problems. I can manipulate these things because I can see the tire that's flat that has to be fixed, the math problem, the this, the that, the so forth and so on. But we've lived in a world in which for the last 400 years has grown in its intensification of turning the world into a problem to be solved. Hmm. We are so linguistically based that as long as I can just explain something to you logically, as long as I can just make it clear to you, make it plain to you, then we should be fine. There shouldn't be a problem. I should be able to explain my political position to you and argue you into a place of understanding that I'm correct and you're incorrect. This shouldn't have anything to do with emotion This or, or our relationship or my fear or my attachment to my parents. This should only have to do with my logical linear processing. Heck, even in the way that we put like nature in our cities, 
right? We want our cities to be have trees and so forth. But like, how do we do it? Like, we plan it out, right? We we make right. sure that those trees are planted X number of feet apart. We don't just like say, hey, we're just going to let a bunch of trees grow over here. We're going to just like let nature do its thing. No. So even in our attempts to create beauty, we do so by making sure it's still dominated by this constructed, linear, boxed-in way of seeing the world. And the challenge about all that, Pep, is that when it comes then to like relational traumas, when it comes to the, you know, you hurt my feelings, and then you say, well, I didn't mean it. So you give me the data, you didn't mean it, and so therefore it shouldn't be a problem. That's not going to be very effective for us. When our African-American brothers and sisters, our Hispanic and our Asian brothers and sisters are having experiences like they've been having, like not just for the last year, right? For 400 years, for as long as we've been around here doing our thing. Yeah. Quoting facts is not how we get to a place of healing and wholeness. That's not how we do this. But we have been primed through a particular way of our brains operating such that the role of the right hemisphere, that to be known and to do all of, its, all of its work, is then to be kind of shipped out to the left brain so that the left brain can help us make sense of this. But it's all in the service of coming back around to the right brain to enable the right brain to then flourish even more. I want to be known so that I can understand what that means so that I can take that process of being known to the next level. We are always, even when we are fixing problems, even when we are logically, linearly explaining positions, at the end of the day, we're, we're still wanting to do that in order to develop and deepen our relationships. At the end of the day, it's because I still want to be with you and cook a great meal and watch a great video and make great music. And then tomorrow, like, paint together or do whatever it is that we're going to do. Like, we're going to create beauty in the world and so on deepen our relationships. And yes, I need the capacity to linearly, logically think about what those problems are. But when I only understand the world in those terms, I lose track of what it means for us to be known. I lose track of the importance of what it means for me to feel felt. I I stop being able to be broad and curious and open about the world. Instead, the world becomes more restricted. It just becomes a problem that I'm trying to solve. When realistically, we're really looking for there to be this rhythmic interaction between the two sides of our brains. And my capacity to interact rhythmically between my right and my left brain, interestingly enough, is heavily dependent upon my rhythmically interacting with you, with Mm. another person. If I don't have my interaction with you, my right and left brain are not going to talk to each other very effectively. And so we we have to have uh, an uh, active, both hemispheres have to be active, even as as you and I are communicating with, with each other so that I can understand and feel. Right. Right? Right, right. Yeah. So I want to take this opportunity to tell you folks about uh, the Center for Being Known and uh, actually have Kurt tell you about the Center of Being Known. They have an event coming up 
and uh, I'm excited about it personally. Kurt, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about the center for being known and about this event that you have that you're planning. Thanks, Pep. Most of you will not be aware that for a number of years, uh, in hibernation has been a small nonprofit organization called the Center for Being Known, and we exist for the mission of being able to create a space where people can come together and be connected. Anyone who really has an interest or a vested stake in what's taking place in life at this intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. And as it turns out, that's not just something that applies to psychotherapy or the mental health field. We believe that this place of convergence of neuroscience and spiritual formation is something that has application deeply in many realms in fact, every realm of vocational domain that we occupy. So whether you're in church ministry or you're in education or you're running a law practice or an accounting firm or you're a carpenter or you're a truck driver, whatever it is, if you're a gardener or a farmer, whatever it is, we want this to be a space where you can come together and be connected with like-minded people who are asking the questions, how can these questions of neuroscience and spiritual formation speak into my life in practical ways that I can then take away and then apply this and actually even create a community of my own who can both exercise and engage and apply these principles in our own particular domains of life. And to that end, CBK, as we call it, the Center for Being Known, will be having its inaugural annual conference virtually on October 22nd, Friday, October 22nd, this coming year, this coming fall, 2021. And we would invite you all to be there. You can find out more information about this by looking online at thecbk.org, thecbk.org. We expect that this is going to be an opportunity for people of a wide range of different communities, different vocational callings to come together to be nourished in this way of neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation. In fact, we're going to have four speakers, including myself, four other speakers who will be giving us a window into how they are applying this work one in ministry, one in education, one in leadership, and one in the field of psychotherapy. Each of them, uh, people that I know personally and that are really skilled at applying this kind of work. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you all to consider doing that again, October 22nd, 2021, our first annual CBK conference called Connections. Please join us there. Excellent. So you can find out more at thecbk.org. One of the most important questions, of course, that we ask people is like, well, what do you feel? And, you know, a common answer is, well, I think, and they, they're going to go tell me their, their thoughts on, on things, right? They're, they're going to tell me what they're thinking. Because even their experience of emotion is one of analysis. Like, I can talk about what I feel. I can't express what I feel necessarily. I can give you the definition, I think, and so forth. But I want to talk more about what I think than what I feel. First of all, because I don't have much practice doing that. Right. Second of all, you all out there, you, you, you may or may not have much experience or practice with language. Like, well, I think there are only four feelings. Like I'm uh, mad or sad or uh, mad. Those are my, uh, I guess there's only three. Right. Maybe only two. 
because we don't have much of a lexicon for this. So it's kind of like I got three primary colors, and that's the only colors that I have. But the reality is that we experience so much more, right? The kind of color and number of color is so much greater than that. But because we've come to see the world as a problem to be solved, because we've seen our marriages as a problem to be solved, our parenting as a problem to be solved, my panic attacks as a problem to be solved, I'm not able to be curious about what is it that this is pointing to about which God is trying to draw me in so that we can create beauty and goodness. I just see this as a problem to be solved, not so much as beauty and goodness that is waiting to be created. And so we have here this experience and expression of the left hemisphere and the way we express it in our culture. Again, not like, like when we, when we it's, it's not just about what happens in the privacy of our minds. When we think about education, for example, right? You got to like, you got to test, you got to pass the test and here are the scores. The whole notion of discovery, the whole notion of curiosity, the whole notion of like, what do you want to learn today? What are you curious about? No, we're going to dictate what you're going to learn. And we're going to tie anxiety to it by the time you're in third grade so that you can start to worry about not passing the test, not just so that you can get to fourth grade, but so that you can get into Yale. Right. Right? And so now I want to, like, make sure that we're, like, pushing you out of your right hemisphere into your left hemisphere to make sure that I'm analyzing, analyzing, analyzing in order for me to know that I'm right. Because if I'm right then not only will I not be wrong, but I won't be left. I won't be abandoned. Because so much gets tied in this left hemispheric dominance. So much gets tied to shame. So much gets tied to the analysis of how if I don't get this done correctly, it's not just that, oh, we'll figure it out again later. I'll try it and we'll work it out. No, it's there will be some kind of catastrophic problem that will ensue because of this. You just sent me back to seventh grade in Sister Juanita's class in my algebra class. Bring it. Just <laughs> Bring so it. So I can vividly remember before this conversation, I would, have, I would have said, you know, I've got a real strong right brain and my left brain's just really weak because <laughs> algebra was not my thing, right? So I'm sitting in class and, you know, I, she's got the problem up on the board and I'm hiding, right? I do not want to be called on to go up in front of the class because oh. I'm going to, I know the shame and the humiliation that's coming when I come up and I look at this problem and I have no idea what to do. And instead of teaching me, she's going to yell at me and she's going to humiliate me in front of the class, right? Yeah. So that's what happened. You know, you get called on, you go up to the front of the class, you don't know how to solve for X. And instead of someone saying, let me teach you how to do this, mm-hmm. it's basically you hear someone saying you're stupid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In front of your 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 peers at a time in your life when you're, you know, that seems like the biggest thing in the world, right? right. So all that shame that's tied into, into that. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and one of the ways then that we, we, we end up, you know, kind of even reinforcing that is, you know, I, I'm just, I'm having this fantasy of, you know, uh, your, you know, given, given your acting prowess, I'm, I'm thinking like <laughs> yeah. that, that you would, you would have had some lines that you could have delivered for, what was her name? Sister... <laughs> Sister Juanita. Sister, Sister Juanita. That, you know, yes. you, could have, you could have said, Sister Juanita, 
I'm I'm perceiving that you're I'm perceiving that you're feeling something about the fact that I don't know the answer to this question. Could we talk about that? <laughs> can, we just, can we just have a little conversation? Because I'm I'm actually feeling a little anxious. I'm feeling a little threatened by this. I'm I'm not really quite sure where we're going. I certainly am not sure where we're going with the math problem, but I'm also not sure where we're going with our relationship, right? In this in this moment, right? Because there is a sense in which one would you would love you would love if our teacher would be able to say, okay, let's let's find a way to let let's 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 find a way to talk about it. Let's find a way to talk about the problem that's on the board, right? Just like you exactly. said, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think about. Uh, Sports, right? And my mind is drawn to, and oh my goodness, I am at the moment I am blanking on his name. It's one of the hazards of turning fifty-eight. Uh, when you turn fifty-eight, um, one of the uh, skill sets that you will lose is the capacity to remember particular high school football coaches' names. It's a it's a very small subset of memory that people are researching. <laughs> Um, I can remember a lot of things. I can remember my name. I can remember your name, Pepper. But I can't remember this particular high school football coach's name. I he, think it progresses to all pronouns eventually. Oh. That's what my dad always said. He's like, <laughs> the first thing to go is pronouns. I can't think of any pronouns. <laughs> so wherever that sits in the brain, oh my the pronouns that's, right. sit, that's the first like, place to go. I know. It's, it's, it's just, it's entered retirement. It's like, it's <laughs> like, it, it's gone. It's moved to Florida. Like, yeah, my right. wife and I are taking a trip to Florida later this month. I'm like, yes, I'm here to find a certain part of my brain. It's the pronoun part. I can't remember pronouns. <laughs> yeah. So, but there, he's, he's now retired. He's no, he's a, he's a coaching instructor and, uh, he won a number of state titles. Uh, with this team. And their motto was, we play football to learn how to love one another. This is what we do. Wow. And of course, you know, at the time and later, I th- he was, he was, a, he, he played for the Detroit Lions. I remember he played for the Lions. Uh, he was, he was a lineman for them, I think. And then came back and coached high school ball and is a believer. And this was his thing. Like, He's like, no, we're gonna. This is what we're here. We're here to learn how to love each other. That's why. That's what we're blown to play football. And this would be like, like, like they'd have to repeat this, right? Every, every so often. And as such, uh, you know, of course, how can you argue when you're winning titles? But what does it mean for you to see that, like, you know, you're going to direct all of this kind of energy, this pounding aggression? You're going to develop it in such a way that you are actually paying attention to a more balanced view. You know, one of the things that you all might imagine is that I'm saying that the left brain is to be, you know, not to be trusted. By all means, no. The problem is not that we have a left brain. The problem is it has become tyrannical over our right in our culture. It's usurped its role as being this mediator of helping us navigate what it really means to be known by one another. You know, I'd also say that, you know, one of the other important things, too, Pepper, about this is that for far too long, we have also, in many respects, tried to shoehorn our faith into my right hemisphere by using the function of the left, thinking that, like, we believe something to be true when we 
have read it. If I've been given a certain set of facts about the gospel, then I just somehow should magically know that that's true. But we go back to the phrase, just say no to drugs. And we know that one of the reasons why that was ineffective was because the part of the brain that hears the words, just say no to drugs, has nothing to do with the part of the brain that wants to do the drugs. Huh. I never thought of that before. Right, no, does that explain some things for you? Does that, that make, help you yeah, make sense of some things in your life? Yeah. yeah. And so the, the whole thing then is that we do the same thing with faith. We say like, well, read John 3.16 and you should know that God so loved the world. And so that's a packaged and wrapped proposition. But until I feel it in my chest, I don't know that God loves me. Until I see it in your eyes hear it in your voice, which is all running to mostly my right hemisphere. I have no idea what loving and being loved is all about, about what being known is all about. You know, one of the things that McGilchrist talks about is a way for us to uh, pay attention to this disparity between the right and the left. And again, remembering that we're not throwing the left out. The left is crucial. If, if I don't have the left hemisphere, like I can't change the tire. Um, when you could love the tire, I could, I could love the tire. You can, you can look at the tire and just <laughs> get emotional about the fact that it's round and flat, and you know right. all those things. I could, I could, get, I could express my empathy toward it. You could express your empathy towards and the, the tire, deflated and the tire. tire would feel known by me. Yes, yes, and would just remain flat as ever. So I, we need the I, left, I, right? We need yes. the left. In order, eventually, though, to like fix the tire so that I can get to the birthday party that I'm having for my friend, right? I, I, I want these things because relationship is where it all ends. In order for us then to go on and create even more beauty, for us to create the next version of a tire, right? But we do this not just with faith in general, as we say, like, look, preachers are not. You know, the news is not good for preachers if you can't tell really good stories because the Bible is a really good story. It's primarily a story. And if we're not paying attention to what the brain and the Bible pays attention to, it'll be really difficult for us to hear and experience what God is trying to say to us. It's really challenging for us to do that. McGilchrist notes that the ways that he has seen in his research, the ways that he has seen in which we are most able to bring this balance of right and left together back together is A, through our encounter with nature. So how many of you have made, especially in this time of COVID, how many of you have made a practice of regularly encountering something in nature, even if it's in your neighborhood? Like something as simple as like you go out, I think, I don't know if you mentioned this, like you go out, you take your Susan socks off and now that it's getting warmer and like you take 10 minutes and you walk around and let your feet feel the grass. So nature is one thing. A second thing, I, I'll just still never forget your, your, your walk at the, at the creek, Pepper. Yeah. The second thing is our encounter with beauty in the world of art. And the third thing is our religious experience. And by religious experience, I don't just mean, you know, 
just mean a logical linear sermon preparation. I mean the worship that we encounter. But I also mean, how are we imagining the texts that we read? Are we immersing ourselves in the story of the gospel, not just the factual truth or the propositional theology, but when I read about Jesus and Matthew, am I able to sit at the table and am I able to feel my chest beat in such a way that I'm actually able to sense the tension when Jesus in front of everybody else is asking this traitor, to go to dinner. Right. To pay attention to my right and my left hemisphere means eventually, as we'll talk about in a couple of sessions, that we need to practice doing that in order for us to be able to talk about our stories more effectively. In order for us to be attuned and attentive to how our memory works. Attuned and attentive to the things that we sense and image and feel. And with that in mind, there are some exercises that I think that we could look at enter into. Great. The first is that just keeping track of any time that we encounter beauty in the course of our day. Now, this would mean we'd have to look for it, but any time we have an encounter with beauty, we name that and we write that down so to keep a, a, a journal of beauty. Mm. That we're going to, you know, at the end of our day, we're going to keep track of like, I had an encounter with this particular sunset that I saw or the tree that I saw, or I actually went out in my yard and I just noticed that the frost was, the snow was receding. And it was just a beautiful take. Like, what am I doing to like pay attention to that and write them down, but also pay attention to what you sense and image and feel when you encounter it. Write that down. Begin... Now here's one that'll like are, you know, many many of you all you'll you'll think like I'm I'm not that's not what I do I don't write poetry I want you to practice beginning writing poems Jack Spratt sat on attack that's a fact Jack you're a poet and didn't know it but you know sure is a Longfellow oh my. <laughs> How do you do that? I would say go online, get yourself a primer on beginning to write poems, and I want you to begin to write. I want you all to begin to write poems. The best great. poets, the best poems are written by the poets who write the most poetry because a lot of it isn't that great. But because of that, because they're practicing, they're engaging the interplay between their right and their left hemisphere because we're using language along with metaphor, along with rhythm and cadence and so forth. Practice paying attention to your nonverbal cues. We talked about this in our last episode. There are seven nonverbal cues. We talked about those. Go back and listen to the podcast, but then make a habit of every day saying that today is going to be the day I'm going to pay attention to what it's like for me to look at other people, my eye contact. Mm. I'm going to pay attention to that. I'm going to pay attention to my tone of voice. I'm going to pay attention to my timing and you know, intensity of gestures. I'm going to pay attention to those things. That is the very act of paying attention is my analytical brain actually connecting with the parts of my right, my, my left brain, connecting with my right brain that is demonstrating those nonverbal cues. And then we have a breathing exercise that we've done that, um, that we've, we've given to folks. We may have talked about this in last season, but it's a simple exercise. Six breaths per minute. Uh, the average human adult respiratory rate is about 12 to 14 breaths per minute. 
If you lower that to six, it means one inhalation every five seconds, one exhalation every five seconds, and a much deeper breath. But to do that requires you to pay attention to your breath because if you're going to watch a video or read a book while you're trying to do this, you're not going to do it because you're just going to go back to your automatic you know, uh, cadence. Why is that important? Because as we do that kind of work, we're giving the right hemisphere an opportunity to breathe, literally. Remember, we're not trying to get rid of the left hemisphere. We're just trying to make sure that it serves the purpose for which it was destined. And that is to help us make sense of what we sense. Because largely what we're trying to do is to create relationships of beauty and goodness in the process of being known so that we can then go on and further create more beauty and goodness in the world. Hopefully, then, those will be four things that we can do. Encountering beauty, practicing writing poems, paying attention to your nonverbal cues, and the six breath per minute breathing exercise that can help bring your right and left hemisphere into a more amiable relationship with each other. Those are great exercises, Kurt. That'll be, uh, I'll, I will uh, venture out on this <laughs> this week and uh, and try these things. Really, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I you know, I, I do some of them, but to put them all, have a sort of a, uh, a list of things that I can do to help in this connection of the right and left brain and um, to help being a, live, live a full life and be able to really connect with people and connect with beauty. Um, I appreciate you giving us these exercises and um, I will be uh, working on those this week. Encourage all of you Thanks, people to, uh, to do the same. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. And I'm, I'm looking this forward was... to, your, to, your, to your poem. I really, I can't wait for your poem. Well, it's a little more like a limerick. <laughs> Um, and we, <laughs> that may be for a different podcast. <laughs> Not even a different episode, like a, a completely different podcast. There once was a man named Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kurt, me. thank you so much for today. All right, man, thank you. Great to be with you again. Thank you. All right. Love you. Love you too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is by Keaton Simons. If you'd like to connect with us, you can visit us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well, be known.